Watch podcast. I'm Aaron Berger, a Nebraska Extension beef educator. For today's Beef Watch podcast, we will be discussing the topic of managing cheatgrass in pasture and rangeland. To discuss this topic, I'm joined today by Dr. Mitch Stevenson, who's a Nebraska Extension Range Management Specialist based at the Panhandle Research and Extension Center. Thanks for joining me today, Dr. Stevenson. It's good to be here, Aaron. Thanks. Well, the focus of our discussion today is going to be on managing cheatgrass and rangelands and pastures. And this is something that you've been working on for a number of years now, actually even prior to your joining the University of Nebraska. Share with us some of what you've learned about cheatgrass and your research both prior to coming to the University of Nebraska and also some work you've done recently. And also give us some thoughts on what we can do from a management perspective to try to reduce the prevalence of cheatgrass in rangeland and pastures. Yeah, it's kind of, it's a perpetual problem. Uh, you know, it, it's widespread spatially throughout the Western United States. You know, it's estimated that NRCS says that it's on over 20% of our acres here in the Panhandle and throughout the Western Great Plains. And so uh, it's, it's a challenge and talking with several producers, one that they've seen uh, actually increase over time here. And so, uh, yeah, it's really something that We've been researching for a number of years, scientists, uh, you know, people make careers and uh, looking at it. And, and so we're still trying to find the best way. And so I'm, I'm really interested in the concept of targeted grazing, which is the application of grazing animals at a specified time, intensity, and duration to achieve a vegetation outcome. Uh, and so that's what we've been doing research on right now with a joint project with the USDA ARS out of Cheyenne, Wyoming. And so it's been, a, it's been a really neat project. We've gone three years now at both sites. Uh, and, and what we're doing is we're tracking cheatgrass consumption of these cattle from early in the growing season until cheatgrass has reached maturity. Uh, so we try to get cattle out uh, grazing when cheatgrass is about two inches tall. And usually that ends up being mid to late April. You know, I mean, here we are talking about grazing season, uh, getting going. We've had some some uh, some days that would hint at spring here in the panhandle but you know then we get cold again so it, it eventually comes but but in the last three years we've we found that that cheatgrass even though we get we get some green up on it and we get a little bit there typically we're we're about two inches in in mid-april so we haven't turned out before then on some of the cheatgrass just a little highlight on some things that we've been finding over these three years is the first thing is, is, is probably that it's variable by year. You know, we've, we've seen plant phenology of cheatgrass be quite different depending on the year. You know, 2018, uh, we found that we had a pretty quick maturity of the cheatgrass to where, you know, cheatgrass was fairly mature when we were coming into early June. And then last year, you know, cheatgrass, uh, we, we, got, we had some cooler temperatures, uh, late May, early June, we got some precipitation. And we just kept seeing some flushes. And so cheatgrass really didn't reach maturity until, you know, we had cattle out there grazing until, you know, past the 4th of July because there was still green cheatgrass out there uh, in the pasture. And so it's a challenging, as, as many of these annual grasses are, they're challenging uh, because they're, uh, the phenology can be so much different depending on the year. But overall, you know, we, we found that cattle have these windows where they tend to graze a little bit more. Uh, but they are grazing during that most of that time period, and it drops off towards the end usually. And uh, you know what they do is they they graze out and they create these patches out in these these 
places where they'll keep going back to these patches of cheatgrass and they'll graze those patches and keep them pretty vegetative, whereas maybe around them the cheatgrass will, will come up. Overall, it's, it is a challenge, but I think there's some promise to it. Uh, one of the things that, that we're, we, we're doing is we're collecting seed biomass inside and outside of the conclusion of each grazing each year. And, and what we found is that we reduce seed biomass by about 50% where grazing is occurring compared to outside. That still leaves quite a lot of seed, unfortunately, and where we're grazing because some of those plants do put on seed heads. But reducing 50% is promising. And you're hoping that, you know, in the long game, that that would reduce or give opportunities for other, other plant species to, to gain hold and, and gain more vigor in places where we've grazed. Dr. Stevenson, share with us a little about how you're analyzing what the cattle are actually grazing. Obviously, on cool season dominated rangeland, where we also have native cool season species such as needle and thread and western wheat that are wanting to get kicked off and growing when cheatgrass is the target as well. How are you seeing that cattle are selecting for cheatgrass and maybe how much are they selecting for that versus some of these other native species? How are you gauging? Uh, what's the impact of that to some of the desirables versus what we're trying to target with the cheatgrass? Yeah, so we set this study up to really look at that. So we mapped out, we were taking biomass as well as other measurements throughout this pasture that we're in throughout the growing season and uh, to kind of track the needle and thread in western wheatgrass. So, so the, the, the pasture is broken up and we have about 50% of the pasture that has 50% or more cover of cheatgrass. And then about the other half of the pasture essentially is predominantly perennial cool season vegetation, needle and thread, western wheatgrass, like you say. And so that's really what we were after is trying to see, you know, we, we, we think they're grazing cheatgrass and then, uh, but we also know that they might be grazing some of these others as well. And so we're, we're using, a, it's relatively new technology. We, we go out and collect fecal samples twice a week. There's a, a lab in Colorado that we send them to. And, and what this lab does is it takes those fecal samples and it really just needs very little amount uh, of the fecal sample. But what it does is it's able to reconstruct that diet based on the DNA that passes through the animal. And so it's able to pick up what they're eating. Now, it's, it's, it's not 100% perfect. And, and uh, you know, it's, it's, but it, it is one of the, I think, the better ways to, to reconstruct a diet or to learn more about what the diet of these animals are in a, in a non-invasive way. And, you know, but, but basically what we're finding is, is that, that cattle still will we'll consume needle and thread and western wheatgrass at the same time. So it brings another complexity and another challenge in much of our rangelands. But, you know, the, there, there are certain windows and there are certain times that we're seeing and we're starting to, to try to analyze those to where we can make better predictions on where the, when they're going to be eating cheatgrass in a greater proportion of their diet compared to other times. And um, some preliminary data would suggest uh, we're still trying to get, you know, we, we want to get at least five years of full sites. So we have a really kind of uh, robust data set over a number of different uh, envir environmental years, essentially. Some preliminary data would suggest that we can do a pretty good job of predicting when they're going to be consuming that, consuming cheatgrass in a higher degree based on the height and the days uh, before or after flowering. So we're still, we're still trying to refine that a little bit, but the goal is to be able to predict, okay, when cheatgrass reaches these heights 
and we estimate that it's this many days before flowering, that's really when cattle are going to hit it hard. And so the, the next move, uh, research that we're hoping to move into will be to, to start looking at that uh, in a more targeted, high-density type grazing situation where we're turning cattle out, hitting it, and then kind of pulling them back in hopes that we can allow those perennial grasses to, to recover and maybe set the cheatgrass back in that way. We are, we are also taking a, a diet quality samples. So uh, we go out and we pluck needle and thread, western wheatgrass, and cheatgrass plants. Uh, take several samples throughout the pasture, combine them all together, and then we send those off to get an idea of, of what, what's the quality of the different plant species. And, and this is where, where we're running into some kind of interesting results too, in that, uh, you know, when we start out in mid to late April, you know, high quality, uh, you know, all of them are, are up in the, in the neighborhood of like 20%. And about every year, over 20% crude protein, you know, really young vegetative tillers. And as we know, those drop down as the plants mature in terms of their crude protein percentage. And, you know, some years cheatgrass is on par with the similar, uh, similar reduction in, in crude protein as it matures as time goes on. Other years it's below uh, what our perennial grasses are. And so, so it, it does bring another, I think, challenge in there that they are going to be grazing some of these other species. And as people use this, this technique to get out cattle out early to graze the cheatgrass, I think we need to be mindful of getting out there and at least walking through our pastures and, and making sure that we're not just hammering on the needle and thread, especially, I think, because there, there's, there's a chance that we may need to keep an eye on that while we graze the cheatgrass. Dr. Stevenson, you've also been doing some work looking at some different herbicide options, and obviously those have application in certain circumstances and may not in others, but share with us kind of what you're finding in terms of when herbicide might be a tool that could be used and what might be effective with that. Yeah, so, so we've put out uh, a number of different options. You know, the main ones that that we talk about are, are uh, it's, it's Mazapic, uh, its common name is uh, Plateau, that's been fairly well known and used in a number of different situations throughout the West for quite a while. And, you know, what we found with that is we get, we get one year pretty good control. Uh, and then by the second year, we haven't been, I, at least I haven't been uh, especially pleased with the results on it. Other, other areas have, have had better success, I think. So I'm not entirely sure. It might, it t soils tie into that, climate, a lot of other things. We've really been working right now with a, a product called Indazaplam. Uh, it's, the name is um, Esplanade, uh, and you can, it's, it's available now. Uh, I think there's still some grazing restrictions on it. I'd have, to, I'd have to go back and look at that. I don't know if those have been quite lifted yet, so we, we, we need to, to look into that more. But, but we've, we've had that out uh, in some plots for two years now, and I've been, I've, I've been really pleased with the results. Uh, we, it, it's, it's kept cheatgrass out of those areas with a fairly high amount of pressure because we have plots right next to it that, that have cheatgrass in them. So it's getting that seed source in there, but, but it, it, it's not letting that, that seed germinate 
uh, in, in those plots. And so we'll kind of see, this will be our third year this spring to see how well they're holding on. Other research, Colorado and a few other places, have generally had fairly positive results in, in its ability to, to maintain that cheatgrass not coming back for a number of years, which is really the kind of the name of the game, I think, in, in cheatgrass management. And so I think it's I think it could be a, a viable option. Still trying to get a little bit more research on it. A few years back, there was some interest in some biocontrols, uh, and, and and this is some some research that was done in the Western United States, looking at certain bacterias that uh, are they're in the soil, they're natural, but increasing those. And uh, there was some uh, hope that that might be a biocontrol that could be used on rangelands that could be uh, applied similar to spraying on herbicide. And, you know, we, we just found that it, it was not effective. Uh, we really didn't see any reduction in cheatgrass at all. And there's been a couple of re- uh, papers recently published uh, in a few different areas of the Western United States that came to the same conclusions that, um, that uh, there, there was some promise that it might do some good, but uh, it, it appears that it might need very specific situations to really have a, a large impact uh, in, on rangelands. And so there are beginning to be a few more options that, that really show promise and hopefully uh, we can get more research, and as we learn more about them, we can start putting a, a price on those in terms of if you if you spray those out, you'll get rid of cheatgrass, and then as native perennial vegetation comes in, this is the value of that. It can be kind of hard to place those values on there without a lot of a lot of good information on that. So promising, but but still. Herbicides can be expensive, and so it's it's one of those things I really think and recommend that people, uh, if they are going to use herbicides, that they start out with a small area and they really kind of see how that's going to work for their plant community, you know, make sure it's in areas that, that have opportunity for perennials. You know, if it's, if it's completely cheatgrass, it's going to be much harder because then you're going to have to spray and then add in some sort of planting to get that native plant community back in there really picking out the site, starting at a small scale, and then working up maybe larger scales with some of the herbicides. Dr. Stevenson, you just mentioned a circumstance that I think probably a number of producers who are listening to this find themselves in. They have pastures that are in a situation where I'd say they've reached a tipping point where the plant community is primarily dominated by cheatgrass. There may be a few remnants of some natives present still, but when they look at the percent of cheatgrass, it's a very large percent. When do we reach a point where we think about changing how we manage a pasture because it's really cheatgrass dominated and maybe while we'd like to get back to some natives realistically, that may be pretty hard to do. What do we do in terms of thinking about that and how might we change management if we've got a pretty much cheatgrass dominated pasture? Yeah, that's a great question, Aaron, you know, because it's it, once once we kind of reach that threshold uh, where where we've gone from that native perennial grass plant community that that, that we all probably want to see out there into a cheatgrass dominated one, I really think we need to start thinking about it as an annual grassland, unless we're able to really put in um, you know, some, some high input cost of getting that perennial grass seed bank back out there. And, and so if that's not an option, then we got to think about it as a, as an annual grassland. And 
and and with that, you know, then then I think we really can can adjust our grazing management and try to use that as best as we can. You know, I, I've talked with several producers in in the Panhandle, and you know, some of them uh, have expressed that they feel like cheatgrass is one of their best early season forages they have out there, which it can be fairly good. And in a situation where you're not worried about some of the perennial cool season grasses because there's not many out there, then you have the opportunity to really focus grazing or or uh, or put cattle on there early in the growing season and get as much utilization out of that cheatgrass as you can and manage that year to year in that way. So it's, you know if it's gone if it's gone that far and you you know you're not going to be able to bring it back uh, just because of the high cost of seeding and herbicide and other things. You know, I think getting as much use out of that as a grazing resource as you can 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 be a valuable resource at certain times of the year. If if there are some remnant pockets out there, you know, hopefully over time there may be some opportunities for those to expand. But um, I think we need to we need to think about in terms of what our dominant species are out in a certain pasture and and really manage for those species. Anything else you'd like to highlight, Dr. Stevenson, as we point towards wrapping up in terms of techniques or management practices that might be helpful to managers of rangeland and pasture who have cheatgrass present? I really think it's, and, and this is, again, grazing uh, is, is uh, you know, it's the long-term game that we're going for. So if you have these pastures that are fairly common throughout the panel that have both mixtures of cheatgrass as well as perennial grasses, you know, I, I think having some focused pastures that you really try to work on. So those are the pastures that you're, you're, you're really focused on. I'm going to apply this targeted grazing early in the growing season on these pastures in particular, because uh, oftentimes we have more land than we can get across. So I think we can focus on some of the pastures that we want to uh, really see if we can make a difference in uh, and not get too overextended and try to get all of you If you can focus on those few many as you can, I think that's a good way of, of utilizing cheatgrass, uh, but hopefully also reducing that seed biomass that's out there. Targeted grazing is challenging. I think we have a lot of good grazing managers uh, that have a good eye for their plant communities out there. They know what to look for in terms of a cattle are grazing on perennials and when to pull them off if they're hitting those too hard, those types of things. I think it can be a really valuable resource. Well, thanks again for joining me today, Dr. Stevenson. Yeah, happy to be here. For more information on the content that we discussed in today's Beef Watch podcast, I'd encourage you to visit the beef.unl.edu website. At the website, you will be able to find a number of articles on this topic.